Hello, welcome to the Life Done Differently podcast with me, Neil Whitten, and my co-host Ray Richards. Join us on our journey to find out what separates the doers from the thinkers. Hello guys, uh, this is a conversation with Mike Dix. Mike is an illustrator, designer, author, satirist, and the man behind the Mayor of Trumpton, the Brexit comic, Mike and Scrabble, and a few more. My particular favourite can be found on LinkedIn, where Mike describes himself as the CEO of Camberwick Analytica. But Mike's third career has been born out of necessity. Mike was a very successful TV and web guy whose bleeding edge technology and bleeding edge thinking had clients queuing at his door. But he needed a job he could do from home in his pyjamas because one day Mike received a diagnosis of chronic lymphocytic leukaemia, CLL, or, or as it's more commonly known, cancer. Mike had no choice but to slow down. Mike's story is about energy. For the first 50 years or so, he had it in spades and he used it to good effect. He's been one of those people who consistently spots something new and translates it for the rest of us. When we see a newfangled technology, Mike sees solutions and opportunities. An early career in computing sales or computer sales, when most people hadn't ever seen a computer, led to a career in TV, which led to a career in website development, when most people thought a website was an electronic brochure. He did a bit of part-time training, and Mike was then forced into this career as a designer, author, cartoonist, and now artist. Yes, artist, Mike. These days, Mike works, Mike's work is delivered through his series of avatars. The whole idea of using pseudonyms or avatars as a lubricant for creativity, and in Mike's case, thoughtful, important, purposeful creativity, seems obvious when you hear Mike's story, but it wasn't obvious to me before this conversation, so thank you, Mike. At the very beginning of this conversation, Mike suggests he doesn't bring out the real Mike Dicks ever. Well, I reckon he got pretty damn close during this conversation, as close as I could ever get anyway. If you're vaguely interested in the idea of spending your precious time doing what you want to do, I'm pretty confident you'll enjoy this. As Mike says, who's saying you can't do what you want to do? Hello, Mike Dix. Hello, Neil. (laughs) Um, Hello, Ray. I might refer to you as Mike Dix the whole way through the conversation because I like the name so much actually. <laughs> Do you really? Mm. Good name. You didn't it? have to grow up with it. <laughs> um, well, yeah. we, were just, we were just talking before we started about uh, your use of avatars actually so maybe it feels a bit odd to hear somebody call you Mike Dix. By the real name, yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I, I use a couple of pseudonyms to write under and uh, and yeah, all of my work is done through avatars, through versions of me, bits of me that um, that I put out there. So yeah, normally I'm, I'm called Mike or Mr. Mayor Mr. or <laughs> Michael Mayor or um, uh, now Bear, but uh, it, yeah, I very rarely, um, very rarely get called Mike Dix or Michael Dix, which is what my mum calls me. So this is an exciting moment, really, because this is the real Mike Dix coming to the world for a bit. I don't bring him out ever. Does. No, he never comes <laughs> out. So we know one another. Um, through Newstar back in the day. Yeah. Um, which, for anyone else that's listened to the early Gina episode, Gina yeah, was also... Amazing Gina um, Lyons. Yeah, yeah. She, was, she was part of that cohort. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it to you for a minute to just go, to, like, 
tell us about who you are today and then let's do the rewind and go right back to as early as you want and do a bit of a potted history of um sure of where you came from if you would um so what where i am now or where where i came from well let's start we, we tend to start with a question of like how do you describe yourself to people today I think that's a, um, I've heard uh, a few of those episodes and I think it's a really interesting question mm. because I think it's the most defining, I, I see why you ask it, um, because recently I very confidently described myself to strangers in pubs as a cartoonist. Yeah. And uh, a year ago, I didn't do that. Um, I just got used to calling myself an author um, and, uh, and even that I felt very uncomfortable with. And a year before that, I was even struggling to say I was a designer. And I'm hoping in a year or two's time, I'll be able to say I'm an artist yeah, um, with great. some level of confidence that isn't, is swearing okay on this podcast? Yeah, oh, yeah. That isn't, Encouraged. Isn't wankery. <laughs> there's an there's a element of wankiness <laughs> to, to saying you're an artist. Um, but uh, yeah, it's about the how do you describe yourself? Everybody wants to pigeonhole. I always ask everybody what they do and, and then what they care about which is the secondary question. Mm. Um, the thing I find really interesting when you meet strangers and ask that question is you, you are, people often start off incredibly apologetically for what, you know, oh, I work in a charity doing the accounts. And you go, what's the charity do? Do you help people? Is it cool? Um, and you can get them excited about what they do, but most people kind of apologize mm. for what they do, which I find really odd. Um, and then people they say what do you do and I say I'm a cartoonist they go that must be cool and I go yeah I get to work in my pajamas <laughs> <laughs> why do people apologise I, I, well, I think we were just hinting at this I always think you should switch the mics on as soon as we meet in these situations because um, we were just talking about uh, why people feel they should be on a path to somewhere that they're, they have a career plan or a life plan or whatever it is and I think sometimes they feel that they should apologise because they don't think they're interesting. They think they're on some, you know, at the very least they're, they're, they're earning money. That's what they do. When you ask them to define themselves by what they do, it's, I earn money. Um, if you ask them why they are earning money, they'll say to pay the rent sometimes. And then you kind of go, well, what's the point? Mm. <laughs> Basically, why don't we just all give up? Um, so I don't know. It's not everybody. I meet some fast, you know, I met a firewoman the other day and her stories are incredible. Um, but the, uh, the, 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 and she certainly wasn't apologetic for saving people's lives. So, you know. Thank God for that. Yeah, you <laughs> really enjoyed it. Um, but I, I don't know. And I don't think anybody should have to. I think that's the thing. I find it really quite sad that anybody is doing anything that they're, they're not happy with because your life's not very long. And it's such a waste if you're unhappy doing what you're but doing. But you, you, could, you could be apologizing because you are doing what you want to do, but it's not what is seen to be. Yeah, they might have a, they might think I wouldn't perceive it as exceptional. As successful Whereas, or you know, whatever. I have a huge amount of respect for accountants because yeah. it's something I can't do. No, absolutely. So, you know, it fascinates me. And w w we've been talking, Ray and I, more and more about this idea of the, the stories that we tell ourselves and how um, they become very embedded and they're quite hard to break. And we don't necessarily spend that much time looking to understand those stories that we've created for ourselves. Yeah. And when someone asks that question of, you know, what do you do? There's a default response, which is to start surfacing that story. And it's interesting to hear you talk about the point that you became more comfortable referring to yourself as an author or as a, 
Illustrator, etc. Because I'd imagine that that's the point when the story's changed. Yeah. And that you start to see that, oh, hold on a minute, I am this. I have enough anecdotes to back that up mm. <laughs> now, basically. Whereas, um, yeah, I, you know, I've made 12 comics in the last 12 months, and now I think I'm a cartoonist, a political cartoonist. Um, but uh, when I did the first comic, I wouldn't have described myself as a cartoonist and comic maker. Um, because you need the stories, really. Mm. I think we're defined by those stories. I think a friend of mine describes me as a person that collects anecdotes about himself, and he's quite good at telling them. Um, um, but he says that you, you know, you live this interesting. You make an interesting set of decisions that get you to the point that the stories are interesting. Yeah. Um, and I would say, we, we, actually, we did a project many years ago. It's going to divert off into all sorts of directions, but we were looking at an interactive drama that we did for the BBC. And we were trying to work out what makes a good character in a soap opera. And one of the things we figured it was almost biorhythmical, that you need to have some extremes for mm. a character, some massive highs, some massive lows. Um, but they, they always biorhythmically come back to an average. Um, for, for those listening at home without a camera, I'm waving my hand around <laughs> like a snake. But it, it's those ups and downs in life. Um, need to be there but what you don't want is a massive extreme like they become a murderer because then they've got to go away for 30 years or, or be executed so they need to almost become a murderer but not quite and yeah. then get married and live quietly for a little while and then come back and do something else extraordinary you know Deirdre Barlow in Coronation Street was that character that sometimes was happily married sometimes was in jail mm. um and I, and I think with your life, it's kind of like that, or my life is kind of like that, that you do some extreme and stupid things, um, and they help you to live a reasonable time for a while, and then you go back to it again, and, you know. So my, my biggest problem is not necessarily learning from those anecdotes. It's, you know, I tell these extreme stories about myself and think, well, just don't do it again. You <laughs> do it. And, and then I you find do. myself back in the loop. <laughs> do you, Mike, do you think you were born um, to be the version of yourself that you are today in no. as much as the way you're defining yourself at the moment you said that you hope that maybe within a year or so you might you might be comfortable calling yourself an artist um well not born certainly but um i i wanted to be an artist when i was 15 16 17 ah, i didn't know that that's really interesting yeah and um and I got expelled at uh, from school at seventeen. Didn't know that either. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, but it didn't feel good at the time, though. Uh, it did actually. Did. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it, it, it was, uh, yeah. No, I got expelled. Um, it's a, I, I tell this story too many times these days. But um, I, uh, long story short, there was a charity called um, I think it still exists called Young Enterprise, which gets you to start uh, a business at school, uh -huh. and normally six or eight of you get together in the fifth or sixth form and, and you make candles and sell them at the school fete. You raise capital. It's, it's a really good charity. I love it because it actually taught me everything I needed to know about business in, in a year. Mm. Um, in that you raise share capital from friends and family uh, and then you run a business and, and you never give them the money back because you yeah. never make any profit. <laughs> and that's that's the startup <laughs> world, <laughs> which I then entered. Um and funnily enough, it's exactly what I do now. You know, I crowdfund everything I do. So it's there's a life lesson in that. Um, but I decided I was working in Dixon's at the time selling computers, the brand new, this is how old I am, they were brand new super things called computers uh, that were replacing hi-fis in some people's homes. And um, uh, so I'm 16 and learning about ZX Spectrums and uh, Commodore 64s. So uh, I got us to organize a computer fair 
uh, at the school because at the time you you had no idea how uh, you didn't know where to buy software. Um, so software was sold in bookshops quite often because yeah. you know the first versions of software were written um, out and you type them into your computer and then tapes came along. God, I sound like an old man, don't I? <laughs> um, tapes came along so that you could store the data on the tapes and then you could buy the tapes, but nobody knew should they be sold in record shops, should they be sold in hardware shops, should they be? So everybody was selling it. So I got them all these shops together and we did a computer fair in the school hall. And um, we charged a pound to get in at the time and there was a queue right around the building for like 1,500, 2,000 people trying to get to, because, you know, I, although I'd realized this didn't exist, I hadn't realized that everybody in the world was thinking the same thing. Mm. Where can I go to see all this stuff? So we had this massive, we took a huge amount of money and um, we had a tiring day, a bunch of 16, 17 year olds trying to run an event of that scale as it turned out. You know, the, the, the committee meeting before the event, we'd, um, we'd been discussing um, how much orange squash we should have and how many biscuits <laughs> we should buy for people. And it turned out we were woefully incorrect. Um, so, uh, so I took everybody down the pub. This is where it goes, <laughs> typically Mike. So you're, you're 16? At 17, 17, in the sixth form. I took everyone down the local pub, um, which we drank in a reasonable, you know, we, we snuck our way in there all the time. And um, because we were all down there, because I was at the bar flinging money around, um, you know, I think I spent a hundred pounds in the pub, which then was quite a lot. Uh, and we did get rather merry, but there was a PE teacher in there and he reported me to the headmaster the next day for this and I was dragged in this very solemn meeting. And the mistake, you made a mistake, didn't you? Uh, the you, didn't, you didn't buy him a pint. That's what you, I was thinking. Uh, no, I'm going to say, I'll tell you the biggest mistake I made is he was in there with a sixth form girl who was 17 <laughs> and, and I didn't say anything about that to the headmaster because that was my lesson learned. If yeah. you've got dirt, basically, <laughs> make sure you use it at the right time. Um, but yeah, you're right, I should have been involved in. Anyway, the headmaster said to me, uh, it was very serious, called my mother in for the 95th time um, to sit there and be told how serious everything was that I'd stolen. And I said, well, I, I haven't, it's a business. There's nothing in the terms that say I can't treat the staff this way, basically, and they deserved it, they had a good day. Um, and he, he demanded I pay the money back. So I, I go to work for a week at Dixon's, earn a load of commission selling computers, go to the bank, get the 150 quid transferred into uh, two pence pieces, <laughs> and I piled them all up on his car, <laughs> and then I got expelled for that. Not for stealing the money, but uh. for abusing my headmaster's car. Um, and I was quite pleased with myself. Have you ever seen him me. since? Uh, he died. Uh. Not, I, I didn't do it, it wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, Peter Frogley, yeah, he died about, I think, a few years ago. Few but years you ago. learned lots of very useful lessons in that exercise, though. Uh, yeah, well, then you see, then your life starts going off on tangents. I was trying to do, I was retaking my art O-level because I hadn't treated it seriously enough mm -hmm. the first time. So I was in the sixth form doing retakes, not A-levels. Um, I was going to end up a year behind everybody anyway in order to get uh, an art qualification. Um, and, and what happened was I'd walk into Dixon's where I worked, and, and I sound like an advert for Dixon's now, thank God they don't really exist anymore. Um, and uh, and I said, look, I need. I've been expelled. I need a job. Is that all right? And they said, Oh, thank God. Made me the computer expert and sent me off for training courses with Sinclair and Commodore and Sanyo and Apricot and Apple. Um, all everybody desperately trying to get people that could understand what a computer was and how to sell it. Um, and that sent me off on a trajectory of working in tech. And you didn't you didn't question that at the time because you because no, I love the tech as yeah, well. Right. I and mean, I was getting paid well. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I was meeting 
Clive Sinclair and people like that. And, oh, um, wow. Okay. Yeah, because it was at the time when, you know, the person that knew the most about Sinclair computers happened to be in Cambridge running the company, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. So um, nowadays you wouldn't get anywhere near uh, that. You know, if you work in an Apple centre, you'd be very lucky to meet anybody, Johnny Ives. Yeah. So where was this? This was in Peterborough. Um, yeah, which is uh, the mid literally the middle of nowhere in the middle of the country. And if it's if it's easy for you to answer this question, what would you say at that stage in your life was the the expected trajectory for you? I was totally on it. Um, job, uh, get married to my school sweetheart, uh, get a house, get kids, and get a bigger house, uh -huh. get more cars, whatever. I went through numerous jobs, um, largely sales jobs. I didn't see myself as a salesman at all, but I, I because I loved and understood tech and I can talk, I, I, I um, ended up in sales jobs and they paid really well. And then I realized you could get a free car in that situation. <laughs> so, And then I realized that you could upgrade that car by changing jobs quite a bit. So I kind of, I was constantly on this expected trajectory but like a really rocky way to get there mm. i was losing jobs getting sacked had a massive problem with authority you know that headmaster story is exactly the story of my life really um and uh but but trying to keep on this path of marry school sweetheart get kids get house get what, what was your first company car uh, it was a Ford Escort Estate, a white one. Oh, nice! From a company called Pitney Bowes, um, <laughs> franking machine company. They. Um, what, what age were you then? And, uh, Nineteen. Yeah. 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 And then I went up to a Sierra Estate, and then uh, Renault Twenty Five. I remember all the company cars. Do you remember any moments along the way where you started to question whether or not that was the right trajectory for you? No, it never was. None of it was ever the right trajectory for me. But I convinced you, myself were you conscious of that with every that? job that it was going to be okay, that I was going to be able to do it, mm. um, that uh, that I was interested. I mean, quite often I ended up working in technologies that were interesting. Mm -hmm. I, I sold some of the first color copiers, the first fax machines. Um, I did a lot of working in technology. I, I, and I think I learned, this is something I learned for a career too, which was um, working in, in the web and television was this ability to translate technology into human terms for people. Mm. Well, I could see what these things could do for you rather than the fact that it was a gray box mm. with a keyboard. Um, so they absolutely didn't terrify me. So, so I was moving through technologies and learning that way using the fact that I got no qualifications to be a, a, an amazing engineer like you and no ability to, to do what you do, Neil. Um, but uh, but a fascination with it and the desire to find people like you to work with to create things in that space that that um, that you could then translate what tech can do yeah. uh, rather than what tech is. You know, I, I still remember us trying to sell computers in Dixons in those days, around the beginning on, on a list of features, mm. which was about processor speeds and mm. RAM and whatever. Um, and you know, and it was me that was saying, "Well, that's enough for you to store a whole photograph." <laughs> <laughs> Back in those days, you know, um, there's enough pixels on that screen to make a photo. That would be awesome, <laughs> wouldn't it? Um, so, so yeah, I'm, I'm not some radical technologist, but I definitely have always seen the benefit of technology for humans if it's used well. And and so I was following that path, and it just so happened that everything else around you is then designed 
to make you conform to an expected trajectory of get married forever, mm. have kids, um, uh, you survive a mortgage. Once the mortgage is paid, then you can get ill and die. Mm. <laughs> you know, um, and when you see that, congratulations. <coughs> excuse me. Um, yeah, and and I think everybody lives. There. I think you know, you just—it's a ladder, isn't it? I always describe it as a ladder that you're kicking the rungs away from behind you. Yeah. So there's no way down once you start climbing. Once you've got that mortgage, and you might as well borrow the money for a car. You might as well do this, and you don't. I, I do remember a sales manager once. I can't remember his surname, but Peter, and uh, I asked him if I could get a uh, reference from the company. The the it was Pitney Bowes, the white escort company. I remember all the job. I can't remember his name, but I totally remember the cars because I spent a long time in laybys trying to pretend I was selling um, and working out. On your excuses. LinkedIn profile, is it just pictures of cars? <laughs> exactly. Than, yeah, okay. I could just map out my CV by the cars. Um, yeah, no, but he said, uh, I said, can I get a reference for a mortgage? And, and uh, you know, I've sort of slightly exaggerated my earnings to, to get this mortgage. And he said, oh, God, we don't mind doing that at all. He said, well, we'll lie about your income. <laughs> and I said, why? And he said, because we want you trapped in this job. Yeah. And I thought that was the wrong thing to say to yeah. me. Totally yeah. the wrong thing to say. Once he revealed the trick, I'm like, oh, hang on. Everybody's trying to do that to me. Mm. So I need to play against them now because that's, they're trying to trap me into staying with them. And so I'm not so there was maybe that. a moment there then of you starting to question. That was a revelation. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's quite an important moment where I just realized, hang on, I'm doing this for other people, not me. And they're trying to make me convinced that this is for my benefit, that all this, all so, this happening. So that's quite relatively early on understanding that you wanted to be in control of your own destiny yeah yeah like in control of my own titanic um yeah not like in a control freaky way just in that i wanted to recognize there is a path to get maybe it's only with hindsight but i think there was always a path i could see that would get me closer to doing what I wanted to do or and, was and at that point doing. what did you think you wanted to do was it was it the artist or was it something else yeah I wasn't because I'd not gone through any of the proper training to be an artist I had this idea of what an artist okay, was yeah. that mm. you know people have but you had some talent um, no I, I had the confidence to, to believe I had some talent and um, I genuinely believe with, with, with certainly with what I do which is computer art these days as a whole um, that it is practice, practice, practice. That, that if you, that anybody honestly can do it. Uh, it's not something I can teach you in a day, but if you spend ten thousand hours drawing the same dog, you can get to the point where you can draw dogs quite well. Um, it's it's perfectly possible. So you have to make that commitment to the amount of time mm. that you're going to invest in doing these things, um, and then you get better and better. I don't actually, I I genuinely don't believe that there's an inherent talent in people. I think there's a you know your environment and everything else. Is what leads. If you grow up it. in a musical family, you're going to be more. If you've got a bunch musical. of drum, trumpets in the house, it's quite yeah. likely you're going to play a wind instrument. Yeah. In, in fact, that's always been a thing with me and my kids. It, it all, I always struggled with this idea of how do I, how do I expose them to people that live a different life? Because it always the question always came to me: How do you become a marine biologist looking after dolphins? How does that happen, yeah. basically? What influences in your life got you to that point? I, funnily enough, I met one the other day, and she, she now runs a museum. Um, but still, I think would rather be looking after the dolphins. Mm. And I asked her, how the hell did that happen? And she said, we used to live by the sea, I'd see dolphins. Yeah, interesting. You know, I wanted to do something about it. It's, it's so, so I think those influences are quite important. And 
for me, the more we could, it's another thing having had teenagers waft through my life, um, <laughs> literally. <laughs> the um, the idea that uh, that they get channeled so quickly at like fourteen or fifteen, we start channeling people into choices. You know, I remember vividly wanting to be an architect at fourteen, and uh, and making all my choices for. Uh, O-levels at the time, GCSEs, uh, to become an architect and then finally looking up how much study you had to do to be an architect. It's six years and, eight, and two years of practice, more than a doctor, mm. in order to allow you to build a building. And I went, right, stop that, I'm not doing that. And then I, but I'd made all these choices that, that were leading me to that. And it's only, you know, now I, funnily enough, I use SketchUp software um, because I'm a cheap shot and I won't pay for 3D <laughs> software um, and which is architectural software designed to build houses uh, and I use that to create my cartoons so I kind of so think I'm an architect, architect of cartoons so I mean maybe that maybe that's the answer maybe um, as kids who haven't been affected too much by the system and the environment it's much easier to tap into whatever is innate in us yeah um, but how it manifests itself. I mean, we, yeah, we, we don't have that kind of clouded vision at that point. Do well, we? and one of the things we do have now is the internet. And, and, you know, when I was younger, we just did not have access to that level of information. No. You know, my favourite phrase is, if only we had access to um, all of man's knowledge uh, in our pocket. Oh, God, we do, yeah. <laughs> basically. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, you can, you can find a niche nowadays if you've got just an inkling to be something you can find a niche if you wanted to be an architect now actually you could watch um thousands of hours of youtube videos that from great architects and documentaries from the last 50 years but you know when i was a kid you'd be lucky to walk into a library once in a while mm. and look up something like that mm. um, and that was the only way to do it genuinely it doesn't make you sound old but literally this is 40 years ago no, it's, it's not right. that long ago at all really um so you talked earlier about, you referred to Career 2, which I found quite interesting. I'm on Career 3 at the moment. Yeah, I kind of guessed that. So um, do you remember the transition from Career 1 to Career 2? Uh, it's when I realised you could, um, that you didn't have to be the salesman okay. all the time. I was always the front man uh-huh. for some uh, either techie companies or creative companies or... Um, and, it, and uh, I got a job as um, working for a guy called Peter Dorr, who was uh, one of the early pioneers of the internet um, uh, or the World Wide Web. And um, he, um, mad as a hatter, um, still is. <laughs> mad as, I hope he's listening to this. He's, you're mad, Pete. Um, <laughs> he, um, uh, he wanted to start a local TV company and radio station. After having seen the power of the internet, he decided that he was going to go into local TV and radio. And, and he was right. He's always right. The problem was what he was predicting was podcasting. Um, but he spent millions trying to build a local broadcasting operation instead of trying to build a tiny one. Um, and I was, he made me the managing director of the TV station and said, right, go and learn how to make a TV station. Go and, A, learn how to build one for a tiny budget, and B, um, learn how to make one, how to broadcast on local cable TV. And it was the best fun of my life. I mean, inventing how to do television was awesome. Um, Just to, to set the scene around the kind of era. So, you came uh, nineties, ninety. Four. So this, so that was just around the time that just um, before the web. 
really but, but before we, the web really took yeah, off. But in TV yeah. terms, we'd moved from four channels to yeah, we um, got cable, cable, but yeah. that was still relatively new at that mm. point, right? Sky and cable uh-huh. were about, and um, so I think you were. I think there were about 50 channels on uh, the local cable network mm. that we'd got. And we were Channel 7, which was the local channel in Cambridge. Mm. What um, was it called? It, it's called Cambridge Red, um, which uh, I was reminded the other day came to me. I was tasked with coming up with a name. And uh, I really couldn't think. It was typical of me. I, I just left it until the day before the board meeting that I was supposed <laughs> to present. Is what I do all the time. And... Um, and I was speaking to my brother, bless him. He always takes the credit for this, and he deserves it. Um, and uh, and I said, but what we need is something like Cambridge Blue. And he said, well, Cambridge Red. And I went, that'll be brilliant. <laughs> and I went off and did that. And I just tore up a bunch of magazines and found every red picture I could and stuck them in a, a, a an old frame I'd got in the house, an old sort of gilt frame. Took that into the board meeting and just revealed it and went, I've put a lot of thought into this. It's called Cambridge Red and these images represent... But you probably had. It, it, you know, no, it, always. And it, it, what I learned from that is, is I c- cannot get frustrated by deadlines. Um, I, they, they do drive me nuts and I quite, I've learned to ignore them. You know, my favourite phrase is Douglas Adams' um, phrase of, I love deadlines, I love the whooshing sound they make as they pass me by. <laughs> um, but actually they do drive me. And, and, and what I find is... I the way I work is I ignore the problem for a long time, but it's constantly ticking away in my head. Yeah, um, and I'm accumulating ideas and mm. information, and then um, eventually it all comes out. And it, it drives me nuts that it always comes out, that it's always there the day before, because you think just once, let me fail at this, <laughs> so that I can find a better strategy for doing this. But you know, it, I've do, once in a while I've I've finished something five days before a deadline and then I've just restarted it again because I wasn't happy that it got done that quick it's, it's, yeah, um, and you will always fill the time won't you yeah and, and, and the way I work now I try I try to I've got sort of three strongish um, projects that I do at the moment on social media and I try to produce something for each of them every morning um, by 10 o'clock and that's that's just my deadline. I, I can ignore it because I'm the boss, so I can yeah. go. No, didn't get anything there. But you know, but, it's um, useful for you. But if I can get a cartoon out by ten o'clock for each of those things, or or, or even just a funny tweet um, for one of them, then I kind of feel I've I've I'm done. And that's what drives me to cre- keep creating content. If you took that away from me, I wouldn't make anything mm, in that's that good. space yeah. anymore. So <laughs> let's come back a second, just to you were you were talking about Career Two and Cambridge Red, mm. um, and that matured as i understand it into uh you kind of being on the cusp of the world of broadcasting tv and the web yeah um so because i was working for an internet millionaire but making tv and radio with tv and radio professionals Mm. not um we were borrowing stealing engineers from channel five to come and build a we built a one-man tv desk i figured that the the only way to do local TV was to do it on the economics of local radio, um, and therefore you couldn't have a producer for a TV show. You had to have a presenter producer, mm-hmm. and um, so we we built a desk that like a radio control desk, a radio desk, studio desk, wh- where you'd normally got audio mixers and microphones, and we added a vision mixer to that and two cameras in a room, uh, and then we had to find presenters that could um, that could pull this off. So I recruited people from QVC um, because they could talk about, you know, part of the uh, job 
interview to be a QVC presenter is they're given a pencil in the interview and they're told to describe the pencil for half an hour um, in this interview. But, you know, and and you end, they end up going, look, well, I can draw with this pencil. Isn't it amazing? Mm. You could write the works of Shakespeare with this pencil. Um, and, and then they get the job and you're thinking... It's a it's a well paid soul destroying job in television to work for QVC. Um, sorry, Paul and Rob, if you're listening, it is you know it. Um, but uh, but, it, but but I thought, well, I'll just give you an hour of airtime and this desk, and and you can say do whatever you want. You can get all the guests in because all of these guys are part of the showbiz world. They were bringing in guests. We had Leo Sayer in and um, you know Darth Vader sitting there one day, um, Dave Prowse. Um, and uh, so we got great guests. We had a great young team of volunteers, and um, we were just making awesome, awesome content. And, and how old were you at this point? Uh, when you 90, started, oh, ninety—I don't know. Um, my youngest son was four, so I must have been well, only thirty something. Yeah, okay. 30, 30. Okay. And how long did that 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 period two career years. two last two oh, years no 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 because that was the beginning of career two okay. which was media and yeah, yeah okay so to get to the final answer to your question we're building a traditional tv set but studio but but actually um completely inventing it for ourselves in a way and learning how to do that on the cheap mm. and all the time i'm thinking what's this internet thing that peter kept talking about why, why are we doing something with that um, it doesn't make any sense to me that we're going old school broadcasting when there's this interesting internet thing over here. So I got him to tell me more about that. Um, and uh, m- much, to, you know, he didn't want us to do anything with it, but I started building a website with a couple of smart cookies in, in Cambridge for the for the um, TV show. And we started working out how we could get some of the video onto the internet. You know, again, it's like people, we've moved so quickly that the, at that time, it was an incredibly expensive process to try and get video onto the internet, yeah. and it was shit. It and it was, was yeah. it was just way too early, but you wouldn't have known it at the time. No, and and you know there were one or two players in there, and they were charging a fortune. Real player, I think it was called, wasn't it? And you had to license their technology to play video. Um, but having learned all of that, I I got a job with a, a, a web agency in London, in Hoxton, who were at the time all they did was build Channel 4's website. There were 50 staff in a cool office in Hoxton building one website for Channel 4, um, which nowadays you could probably do on WordPress with one guy um, and YouTube. But um, uh, they were locked into a contract. We paid a lot of money in that period to uh, to run Channel 4's website. So I went down to, to help them expand beyond that client. Uh-huh. <coughs> Excuse me. So it was a... A combination of the sales skill and the managing director skill to to take the company away from just being reliant on one customer, but then took me it took me away from what I enjoyed about Red TV, which is actually making programs and mm. um, you know sitting up until eleven o'clock at night with some interesting people in a band in the studio that we squeezed into this tiny. And, studio. and how are you feeling at this moment? What, what what's going through your you're are you enjoying it? You're yeah, massively exciting. You I mean, you know, I'm, I'm hanging out at Channel Four. Yeah. Half the time, because they weren't very good at paying us, um, I'd, I'd be threatening their accountants with staging a sit-in in Channel 4 <laughs> um, and doing elaborate things like that. We, we um, It was dot-com boom one, so there was lots of money around in Hoxton and Shoreditch and some really interesting people. Um, and, and we were working in TV as well, so, you know, we... we, we 
we got to a point where we were so fed up with having to do meetings with TV production companies to um, webify their TV shows, which we said is that's not a word. Um, <laughs> that's not what we do. And uh, and they'd come to us two or three weeks before transmission and say, "Can you webify our TV show?" And we'd go, "Well, no. You, you know, you don't get what this medium is compared to what your medium is. And if you w really, genuinely want something that engages people in an interactive space, you need to call us in at the development phase of a TV show because we can help you with some ideas that would." play to that audience and you can build them into the show and they can appear in the show a bit yeah. but if you just ask us to build a website with some pictures of the actors yeah we can do that that's fine that's 50 grand fuck off <laughs> like, but but um but we got so arrogant about that that i i set up a um thursday afternoons uh, every week we would get tv producers to come and queue up outside our office ridiculous when you think about it now um, and they would come and pitch their TV show and we'd decide whether we were going to build them a website or not and I famously told Endemol that Big Brother was a stupid idea <laughs> <laughs> and, and we weren't going to build their website basically they came off to a company in Brighton to build it and then ended up buying them um, two yeah, years later yeah, for about 10 million so yeah that was my, my uh, Beatles moment uh, turning down the Beatles I'm still pleased we didn't build Big Brother's website, to be honest with you. Um, and, then, and what we did in there was experiment with, uh, because we got so fed up with TV producers not getting it, uh, we started experimenting with ways to tell stories using interactivity. Mm. So we did, some, we did the first um, online murder mystery, which we played out as a real murder had happened during the eclipse um, in 1997. Um, and we did interactive dramas and things on the Channel 4 website and through Channel 4 and ghost stories and things um, and learned quite a lot about how you do that. Um, and then I, I guess I went through about five, six iterations of that with other companies. Um, uh, in it, it sounds as though until this point, what's driving you, certainly in some part, is getting involved in new stuff. Always, yeah. It, it's... Um, I used to call my company Bleeding Edge um, because it was it was like at the leading edge of technology, but the bit where you make no money. Yeah. Um, yeah. And actually, I, I tend to get quite... You make the mistakes that others benefit from. Well, I, yeah, I tend to get quite disinterested in it when it starts to make money. Or that's my excuse for not having a lot of money. <laughs> um, because it actually then just becomes about making money. It, mm, yeah. If you go back to that young enterprise thing, it just becomes about giving a return to investors on capital invested. Um, that's what business is, and it's it's a really easy equation to work out. But in, if you think about how cool a number of platforms used to be before uh, they, 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 um, they floated, yeah. well, before they floated on the stock market yeah. as a rule, as soon as you see a company float on the stock market, you realize it's going to be shit and naff from now on yeah. because... Um, because they're just trying to generate money from advertising. So Facebook is a horrible place now because everything they do is designed to to generate money from you. Whereas and the, it used and the to people be a, that got it to that point won't be there uh, for very much longer. No, usually. they will leave usually. very rich and then start investing yeah. in some cool stuff again. It's a cyclical thing, um, and it's good as long as it keeps maintaining itself that way. Um, with, but, it, with, it, but with Bleeding Edge, mm. that was really interesting to hear you articulate... Um, where you exist in the cycle and and that kind of understanding of yourself but and then to relate that back to the name because i remember bleeding edge years ago um as in you referring to that as your consulting company yeah yeah did you did you know that did you know that of yourself then and did you name it as such yeah absolutely it was it was absolutely knowingly um 
There was, I had a friend um, who, when they left Bomb, they start, started a company called Same But Better, which was the, 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 literally saying, we will, we will create you something a bit like this Facebook thing, but it will just be better, yeah. basically. And I'm thinking, well, that's not really very aspirational. Um, for me, it was always, I wanted to go and play with smart um, technology and find a way to tell stories with it, mm. and find a way to use it as a medium. You know, we've gone through a whole period with the internet where there's a lot of people who had huge expectations of the internet being a medium, and it is, um, but it, as a medium in its own right, I still don't think we're close to working out w w what it is. Um, you know, it's, um, and it's because it's unregulated. It's, it, you know, it's impossible to regulate. And, therefore and it changes so quickly. Yeah, um, and doesn't as well. I've been doing a training course about how to um, tell stories with technology for, for about 15 years, and it literally the pictures change, but the, the, okay. the point doesn't, basically. And I actually quite enjoy the older I get looking back at the history of all the mediums and realising that they all struggled for a period of time to find their place. You know, um, Edison... Uh, totally thought that the telephone would be a broadcast hmm. medium. Um, he installed telephones in all the opera houses and theatres of London uh, in order to broadcast uh, the operas to middle-class homes. His idea was that you would hold a receiver out to the opera singer and a and hundred homes in London wow. would <laughs> stick their ear to a phone and listen to the opera, basically. Yeah. Um, so he was totally wrong about how that would be used. You know, SMS is another great story of... It was an engineering system. Texting was an engineering system designed for engineers in Finland to work out where the towers were and but what. But you need you need that vision, don't you? You, you need, need something to aim for. You need somebody that comes along you. and looks at it and says, "Hey, you know what I could do with that?" Mm. Yeah, it doesn't matter that it's not actually what how it's used. Exactly. Ultimately. I mean, as a rule, it's it's always been somebody coming along going. I could totally distribute porn on that. <laughs> yeah. and, and then it takes off, you know? So VHS and everything is like that. And, and that's why we ended up regulating radio and TV because people were distributing porn on them in one way or another. And everyone went, we can't have any of this. We need to regulate it. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we, we've had this conversation a few times uh, around about vision. Regulating uh, porn? No, <laughs> not about that. That's the first. But, you know, um, we all need direction. In, whether it's in our lives or, or, or in our jobs, we need something to aim for because that's the thing that drives us. But very seldom is that that vision that you have exactly. Never. Well, I mean, yeah. Almost never. never. I, was, I, would, I think you're right. Yeah, I think, um, and actually I think it's a, it's a dangerous thing in a way, you know, it's... Uh, if you're wedded to it. Yeah, well, you know... I mean, I'm constantly in two minds about this. So I, I, I really admire what Elon Musk is doing at the moment with SpaceX and Tesla. Um, but I also think he's a bit of a pervy-looking weirdo who, and, <laughs> and, and a bit like a James Bond villain. You know, you kind of go, well, maybe if you just paid all of that money over in tax, NASA would be better. Yeah. Um, and, and we might also have clean water in Michigan, basically. Yeah. It's like, um, he, why did he get to choose to do the space thing? Um and uh, and yet I'm still massively impressed with what he's doing and the way he's rolling it out and the, the drive and the vision that he's putting into that. But know? I wouldn't want to be him. Um, why? Because I think he's pretty um, exclusively focused on his work. Yeah. And I cannot imagine that being... Well, enough for me. It, I, think, I think he's been quite outspoken on this, hasn't he? That he feels such a drive for 
what it is that he's doing through work that he doesn't leave any it's, time it's, or space for anything else. He's building spaceships. Well, yeah. <laughs> I true. mean, really, if, yeah. if you're going to be driven by something, I think watching rockets go up all the time yeah, is pretty, pretty cool. Um, no, I mean, that's interesting, Ray. Uh, I personally, uh, I think I am, I am very driven by my work because I finally found work that I would probably just yeah, do anyway. Yeah, okay. And, yeah. That, and that's probably like him as well. He, yeah. he, he He's in control of... There's a YouTube channel wants. called BPS um, Space, and I can't remember the guy's name, but he looks like a young Elon Musk. He looks... This guy is... is um, And he's literally... Bit pervy? He's, no, he's not. <laughs> oh, he doesn't look like Elon Musk. Not yet. You know, he's young <laughs> okay. enough. But he's building um, he's building space rockets that and, and computer control systems for these rockets that are... Uh, you know, like models. Yeah. But he can land rockets just like Elon Musk can, and he can talk about it just like Elon Musk. And you look at him and think, I don't know why Elon Musk has not adopted you, but he should, basically, <laughs> at some point in time. Maybe he will. There's That's a hero right. worship thing going on, and yeah. they talk to each other. You see them talk to each other on Twitter. It's like, there's an incredible world out there now. Um, and I love things like that. And I think, I, I personally, I think that is the technology that uh, if there's a bleeding edge technology at the moment it's it's there's two for me at the moment it's 3d printing and space um and uh, jeff bezos from amazon talks quite eloquently for him because he's not a very good talker but he talks about uh the uh the fact that he couldn't have started amazon in the 90s without the infrastructure of roads the post office mm. and the internet uh, without those three massive infrastructure projects that he did not invest anything in, um, he couldn't. Amazon would not exist. And what he wants to do now is create the infrastructure for future entrepreneurs to be able to exploit space. And that's just quite a powerful ambition yeah, to have in exactly. life to really make exactly. a mark. And even if he fails at that, he'll land some rockets on the moon. He'll build a bit of that infrastructure, and we'll probably remember that. Yeah. I actually think when you've got a reasonably short life. Uh, I mean, literally, you know, a reasonably short time on Earth, and these guys are talking about not being on Earth, um, then then achieving something like that is a good thing. If you end up calling something, you know, the Bezos crater on Mars, um, that'd be good. That'd yeah. be fine. There's a great, there's a guy called David Eagleman who, um, one of my favorite short books is um, that he wrote is called Sum. Yeah, David, he's a, a neuroscientist. And uh, he wrote 40 stories, 40 versions of what heaven is. The very short stories of what heaven is. And it's from his experience of people having near death, um, dying and having near death experiences or looking at brain functions. And um, it's not a religious book at all. But one of the descriptions of, of what heaven is, is it's a massive waiting room, like an airport lounge. And it's full of, of an infinite number of people in this lounge. And they're all sitting there looking at monitors. Um, and uh, and when you get there, you, you walk into this hall and you see some of your relatives there. And then you see Archimedes and you see Einstein and you see Hitler and you see um, uh, all the queens and kings of England. Um, and you sit there going, this is, odd. this is it? We just hang out in this lounge? All these, all these people that I know. But then you start to realize that actually not everybody is there. It can't be because the place does actually have walls. Um, and you realize that everybody's watching the screens, watching Earth, and just waiting for enough time to have gone by where they're not been, their name's not been mentioned and they've not been remembered. Um, because every time your name is mentioned, you have to stay waiting in the waiting room until nobody mentions it for a year, and then you're allowed out. Hmm. 
so Einstein and Archimedes and all these people are in this hell of sitting there being remembered they're forever. They're going to be there for a while, aren't they? Yeah. So and yet, what I'm where I'm leading to with that is I do have an aspiration to be remembered for something after I've gone. You know, I want to leave a little mark somewhere Why? that I contributed in some way because I want to contribute something to humanity, and my ego says I want to be recognised for that as well. Basically. Where at what at what point do you work that out? Oh, I think that's. I think that was when I was. Uh, when I started trying to be the captain of the rugby team and the chairman of the sixth form and the managing director of the Young Enterprise Company and mm. the whatever, basically. So it's, you, the, you, you, it's my Boris Johnson you want to be no, characteristic. You, wa- you want to be noticed. Yeah. Uh, I went on honeymoon um, the first time round. I'm a serial divorcer now. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. I'm going through that right now. Um, the, um, I didn't want to be that guy, definitely. <laughs> but I am that guy. Um, That's not how you're going to be remembered. But the first only I went on was uh, to Pompeii. And there's this bench in the plaza in Pompeii. And uh, I asked the guide what, what it said in Latin, carved into the bench. And she said, um, and she looked at it and she said, uh, I can't remember the exact name, but she said, uh, this bench was paid for by Pontius the Butcher turn left at the top of the square <laughs> and I just thought that guy 2,000 years later has just had his name remembered because yeah. he carved it in a bench to say I paid for this yeah. come and get some meat basically <laughs> so it's kind of that is what I'm after and I he's still sitting carve my name on a bench as well isn't he because you just mentioned exactly. his name again exactly yeah. very nice so um, there was a series of different career moves um, in what you describe as career two but then sackings, mainly, and sackings. <laughs> mainly. or just um, running away quick enough to avoid the sack. But it was leading towards something. What? What was? What was the? Was there a wake up moment leading to this next phase of your life? Cancer. Yeah, and I, I didn't want to guess that that was the case. I assumed it was. I guess too, because there isn't always key moments. The last job that I had, I really did enjoy the job and hated my boss. Um, not hated. That's too strong um we just were incompatible mm. and he was a bully and i wasn't a good victim and um and i got the, i did get the sack from that job and i thought right look i've had so many jobs so many run-ins with authority that i cannot any longer have this story this narrative that um i've just been unlucky with bad bosses mm. um it turns out it's me that's the common factor here and i just should never have a boss again so i'd made that decision about um eight, nine years ago. And, uh, and then in 2015, 16, I was diagnosed with uh, leukemia. And uh, uh, there's a kind of cliche to that moment where you sit there with the doctor and you're told you've got cancer, um, which is that you don't listen to any words after the cancer Mm. word. It's just, oh God, death sentence. And, you know, it turns out with my form of leukemia, I'm just having a a steady warning of uh, impending doom, which comes back on regular cycles and makes me feel like crap, but but it doesn't kill me. Um, and uh, which is actually a real gift, um, which was, okay, now I need a job. I was, uh, I was a <coughs> consultant working for some digital companies, some TV companies doing my own thing, um, really washing around trying to work out what I was without a, a boss uh, and trying everything. I see a lot of people do that. They go freelance. They put a big long list of what they can and have done, and they they put that out there and say, "This is what I am." And people go, "What the hell are you? Mm. You can't be everything." 
people need definition of what you are and I hadn't worked that out I didn't work that out until I followed a van that said uh, Tim's uh, palm trees for the film industry on the back of his <laughs> van and I think that's so specific that's well done so Tim. focused yeah, yeah. but I totally know what yeah. Tim does basically <laughs> yeah. just palm trees Tim can, can you give me a fir tree no yeah. that's not that's Brian's fir trees for the film industry <laughs> but, um, but it's very specific and obviously he could afford a van and I couldn't so I thought I need to focus something um, but the cancer focused me on the basis I needed a you know I was traveling the world doing teaching and consultancy and and, and it's it's an energy-consuming process to, to certainly to teach, which I was doing um, quite a bit of, um, and uh, in the lead-up to being diagnosed, I was the, the net sum gain from that. It used to be that the adrenaline and the ego buzz of teaching for mm. a few days um, was was far outweighed the tiredness of working. Um, and uh, and actually, I was losing that game uh, more and more. In fact, I I was teaching in Italy uh, on a course called ESADOC, which normally was um, was my sort of vampire moment, working with young people from all over Europe and Africa uh, who all wanted to make important social documentaries, and I was helping them learn how to fund that and um, uh, disseminate it on the internet and avoid the plagues of television and, and the film industry by doing it themselves and also helping to deconstruct their ideas and rebuild their ideas it was such a great course um and 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 i would finish at five o'clock finish talking and set a task for the next day go to my hotel to hotel room and and just collapse mm. no food no drinking no you know, whereas in the past, I'd be out with all these people until three in the morning and then we'd be up again at nine starting again. Um, and I just couldn't do it. And um, so I was exhausted constantly and went to a doctor. And luckily, the, the, my GP, um, which is quite important, uh, not all GPs know to look for the signs of um, CLL, my form of leukemia, particularly in younger people. Um, but he suspected it, got me to do a blood test, rang me at seven o'clock that night. And you know you're in trouble at that point because <laughs> doctors don't do that. Yeah. And uh, and he said, I'd like you to come in and see me in the morning. And I said... How um, were you feeling at that point? Well, I, I genuinely did say to him, I said, I have a bottle of whiskey here. Should I should I drink that? And he said, yeah. Really? Yeah, I did that. Oh, right. So he, he, he told you. Yeah. Um, and did, had you sort of skirted around the idea that that might be what, what the problem was because you said he had an inkling? No, he hadn't told me at all what he was doing the test for. Um, okay. And, he, and he, it's just... You know, I had people... I'd seen my dad's diagnosis of cancer, and um, uh, so I, so I, uh, I kind of knew what was what was happening there at that point. Um, and then, and then, yeah, you have that meeting with him where you don't listen to a word he's saying. He then refers you to a haematologist, and that meeting is pretty awful when you realise that you're in a cancer ward, um, and you don't listen to a word they're saying. And then you just have to work out where you go with treatments and things fairly quickly. I quite quickly went into chemotherapy, but what it did for me was. Um, I had to carry on working. I'm a freelancer. You, you know, there's nobody going to give me statutory sick pay at that point. Um, so I had to work out a way of making money sitting at my desk in my pajamas, mm. not having to go and see clients, um, not having to do meetings, not having to go to London um, or travel abroad because uh, I was just exhausted. The, the biggest symptom of uh, leukemia, which is back with me again at the moment, is fatigue. It's just this, you know, immense fatigue. Um, I was walking up here this morning thinking. Why did I agree to 
come up at 10 o'clock in the morning up a bloody hill um, because I'm like an old man. But then I realised why municipal um, councils put benches on roads. It's for people like me to have a rest <laughs> on the way up the hill. Um, and to leave legacy. Yeah. yeah and I, I, Sponsored I, by Pontius yeah, the Book. Yeah. Obviously, I scratched get, my we'll name into it. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. I vandalised the, uh, <laughs> the bench. They are, though, all the ones in Brighton. Don't you think, I think, sorry, this is a tangent, but when you go walk along the seafront and somebody's gone and put fresh flowers on one of the benches that has a little plaque on there, because yeah. they just go back and visit their gran or something, they see, I do love that. All, nice, dog, all their dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, <laughs> yeah. We'll, like on, we'll, we'll come on to your dog. Yeah, we'll, I'm sure. Well, she came very quickly after this point. So, um, so I decided that I, throughout all the jobs I'd done, all the careers that I'd done, I had always done amazing PowerPoints because that was my creative output um, in that uh, I would design leaflets for companies where they didn't, where I wasn't the designer, I was supposed to be the salesman, um, but I'd do the leaflet design because I could and uh, because it gave me a creative outlet, um, which I always hoped somebody would just go, you're a much better designer than you are a salesman, <laughs> why don't we make you a designer? But they never did and I realised it was because I never told them I wanted to do that, yeah. you know, it was just I was waiting for somebody to tell me. And I found a website, which I, I will always plug, called 99designs.co.uk. Um, uh, and their philosophy, which I slightly objected to uh, initially, is that uh, as a client, you go on and set a price for a logo, so that you want designing. And um, uh, you could say it's $200 or something to knock out a logo. And uh, up to 100 designers will pitch an idea at you for a logo. Uh, and if you choose one of them, um, they get £100, and the others get nothing. And I thought this was a bit unfair, lots of free work. But then as a salesman, I'm thinking, yeah, but how would I get any of that work uh, that easily? Mm. Um, I'd have to get on a train and go and see somebody and network and, and do all that crap that you don't want to do. Um, so I played the game with this website and worked out how little work I needed to do and how many competitions I needed to enter, and that let me practice and practice logo design and reading briefs and... And I got to the point that I became a platinum designer within about six months, in the middle of chemotherapy. And do, do you find as, out as part of that process who won the gig? Oh, yes, always. So um, you can start to there's understand a community of what artists. Is, uh, yeah, yeah. And there's a community of artists that talk to each other about how awful clients are <laughs> and how terrible their briefs are, um, and, and learn from each other in that process, which is great. Um, and uh, and you can then get to a point where you can educate clients on what a better brief is as well. Um, uh, all the kind of briefs that you want to respond to and you can you, you can pick and choose you know I still dip into it uh, every once a week just for a creative challenge to find something that uh, either interests me as a project in there I stopped pitching uh, initially I would pitch for anything so I was doing logos for banks and hedge fund wankeries and um, sorry they're not called that are they <laughs> Um, and then you decided to just go for palm trees and the... Uh, no, no. <laughs> well, now I just do um, companies that I like or companies that have an ethical stance or um, books. Um, I like to do book jackets for people. Um, and I'll still do them for $100, but I tend to compete for the platinum ones, which is sort of $1,000 where you're up against better better artists as well. Um, and that's a constant learning process for me is to kind of improve and use new skills that I've learned mm, subsequently to do that. But that got me... It didn't necessarily generate me... A lot of revenue but it got me a the first gig i won was a donut shop in detroit and then they sent me a picture of the sign on their donut shop so you know i've i've done my little um butchers in uh um italy bit and and there's a 
donut logo on a, on a um, shop in Detroit that I, that's a bit of me for a while, basically, that I can say I did that. And then you find some really interesting clients, like I worked with a Harvard professor who'd written a book, and I ended up doing all the illustrations for his book uh, about the, uh, the problem with um, averages, the problem with the fact that we average... Uh, everything and it's the wrong way to look at things essentially I will go off on a million tangents and I know you've got a time limit on no, this and fine. I'm sorry um, the, um, he, he wrote this book uh, called The Problem with Average and essentially it starts with this lovely story that uh, in the 1950s America was losing planes they were just dropping out the air in the military and um, uh, during the Korean War and the Vietnam War and um, th nobody could work out what was going on. Um, and uh, so they looked at every component of the plane, every component of the pilot's training. They, they actually started looking at the pilots and saying, it must be the pilots, they must be crap, it must be human error because the planes are amazing. Um, and then somebody actually looked at um, the cockpit <coughs> design and said, um, how, do we, how do we decide how far the seat is away from the yoke? How do we decide the pedals and whatever and the positioning of controls because a lot of these planes were falling out of the air when something happened at high speed or a change or whatever and, and it appeared that um, it looked like pilot error it looked like the pilot wasn't able to do the thing that he should do pull the yoke the right way or do yeah. whatever um, and uh, so he asked how do we do that and they said well we take um, measurements of all the um, pilots in the US Navy and Air Force and uh, and then we average that and then we design the cockpit to fit that and he went Okay, what if we made some of this stuff adjustable? Because mm. he said, how many soldiers, uh, pilots do we have who that are, are average? Mm. Average. <laughs> yeah, very it few. turns out, none. Mm. Absolutely none. nobody yeah. fit the average yeah. measurements that they were using. Yeah. It was uncomfortable for everybody. Mm. Um, so they, they invented adjustable belts, seat belts, adjustable seats, and adjustable yokes on these planes so that the pilot could, um, could fit in the plane and the plane stopped dropping out the app. Uh, and he, he, Todd, um, I can't remember his surname. I will try and send you a link for when you do this. But uh, Todd uh, had been a, a dropout student. Um, he'd um, pretty much done what I'd done and dropped out of school at 16, 17 because he'd been failing at exams. Uh, and it turns out it's because of when he was born. Um, he was a September child, I think, and September children, um, or, or August, June, probably, or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. They, 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 uh, they end up the youngest in the, their class yeah. with a bunch of other kids that have more experience. Um, and um, and if you if you follow these lovely graphs he's got of um, how kids can attain, you know, kids that do really well in exams peak at the exams. September kids and kids born before that peaked just after the exams. Mm. Um, and he ended up as a Harvard professor because he worked this out basically and went back and taught himself. Um, so anyway, I got to do all the illustrations for that, which I, which I loved. And how would you get that project in any other way than that website existing? And all of these things just gave me more and more confidence to be a, to say I was a designer at that point. And then I, I was thinking this morning, I saw a, I saw an article on LinkedIn from a friend's company that's doing incredibly well um, called Little Dot. And I'm thinking, I did your logo and you still got my logo. Look, that's great. This super yeah, nice. successful company yeah, with my logo. It's just awesome. And, and so this new, um, well, Career 3, mm. would that have happened without the diagnosis? No. No. Cause the definitely the, not? Definitely not. The focus for me was f finding a way to... Um, I actually described... 
I, my, my doctors call my counsellor a good counsellor, and I tell my doctors not to do that, because I said, you know, anyone that's got cancer is not good. Yeah. You haven't got cancer, so it's a good cancer for you, but it's not yeah. good for me. Uh, I said, I get there are worse ones, but, yeah. but honestly, it's, it's never good to Have call it. Have you come it. up with a better label? Um, shit cancer? <laughs> well, actually, there's a, there's a lot of talk at the moment with, with changing the diagnosis of leukaemia away from cancer, because it's a... It's a um, it's quite a bag of, of ailments that, that that range from uh, breast cancer through to um, um, tumorous cancers, really, and it's the bit in the middle to do with blood and lymph systems, and, and almost every patient has got a completely different set of bag of um, symptoms and reactions to things. So uh, actually there's an argument to say that in the next 10 years, um, it's quite possible we'll we'll find a, a cure uh, or at least a, a good management system for what I've got. Um, so it will end up being a bit like diabetes and we won't be treating it with mustard gas as we do at the moment. Um, uh, there's a whole story there. But yeah. they, chemotherapy is a nice name for injecting you with mustard gas because it is mustard gas they're injecting you with as mm, a rule. Didn't know that. It's a horrible story. The guy that discovered this um, got a Nobel Prize for for dropping mustard gas on the Philippines to test the results of it on soldiers during the war. And what he found out was that the civilians that got caught up in this, those with cancer, this is what he found out after the war, uh, those that had cancer um, came out uh, without cancer, miraculously. <laughs> so he went, well, we should look into this. So instead of... Um, Instead of being a war criminal, he was uh, given a Nobel wow. Prize, and then we inject That's everybody. That's a turnaround, isn't it? Wow. But it's, you know, it's a barbaric treatment, and and as with a lot of cancers, you know, they, they hack bits of you off. It's um, if you get a breast cancer, they hack your breasts off. If they, it's if like you, the, the modern day version of um, is it trephining? You know, where they used to put a yep. hole in the skull. Yeah, and at the time. Well, would it, have welcomed that because yeah, it's the best, the best they had. And have, before right? antibiotics, they'd exactly. chop your arm off to stop the gangrene yeah, yeah, spreading. Yeah. You know, it's um, uh, we're at that phase still mm. with a lot of cancers where we just bombard it with something that will kill everything in the hope that the good stuff will grow back mm. better. In, particularly in my case, um, it's um, it, most people don't know what leukemia is. It's it's not necessarily that illness that um, little cute bold kids get. Um, but I've seen those kids, bless them, and uh, that's acute leukemia. It's connected. Um, but uh, I have chronic leukemia, which is a, so it's a chronic illness, which means I will always have it until I die. But I probably won't die with it. It'll just make it make it a quicker <coughs> process when I get something worse. Um, but it's about my immune system. So you have, you you produce white blood cells in your bone marrow. Um, and those white blood cells are your first line of defense in your immune system. So if you get a, a, a bit of a cold, um, a virus enters your body, um, your body starts generating lots of these white blood cells. It says there's something wrong, there's an intruder, send out the boys. Um, so this thug's army of white blood cells go out, they're a bit stupid really, but they're all programmed slightly differently to attack things in different ways. Um, they kind of find the virus and explode near it. That's mm. pretty much what they do in the hope that they take out the virus. And then as they do that, if they've been successful, they send back a message to your system that says, I was effective, I got rid of the virus, make more of me, and your body goes into overdrive, making more and more of those white blood cells. Clever stuff, isn't it? It's how we become, our bodies are amazing, mm. you know? It's how we become immune to things, um, that, that uh, your body creates these white blood cells and it leaves a few of them in your system just to remind you 
of what good ones are, and mm. if it recognises that virus again, it, it can easily manufacture more of them. The problem with mine is that they, um, and I describe them as, um, if you think this is like a skinhead army, it's like a Nigel Farage army of Brexit um, campaigners, gammons, um, running around um, looking to start a civil war in your body. Um, in my case, it's very much like that in that I, I describe them as the skinheads that turn up in Brighton uh, every May and they're in their 60s now on their scooters and they're still looking for a fight, but, but they couldn't fight a 20-year-old if they, if they were given the chance or given a gun. Um, mine are like that and they're, and they're pretty much in a retirement home now in Worthing, um, still looking for a fight. My body fills up with them. They, don't, they're, they're, um, they, they live infinitely. Uh, I create these superhuman white blood cells that won't die. Mine are better than yours. Yours, yours <laughs> die. Mine don't. But that's useless because they just clog up your body then. Right. And they tell your body, don't worry, I've got plenty of white blood cells, so don't make any more. But they're ineffective. But they're rubbish at what yeah. they do. It's such a great analogy for the Brexit. Because <laughs> they're watching daytime TV and they're <laughs> like reclining. Exactly, yeah. they're listening yeah. to Piers Morgan all, yeah. all day longer. Yeah, yeah we're ready the for this. Braces and their fair parry. Yeah, okay. Yeah, with yeah, you. absolutely. That those guys, and they're saying, "Don't, don't send any youngsters out. We're all right." And um, and <laughs> we then can handle this. Yeah, and then I get a cold, and and they're all going, "Oh, I'm not fighting that." And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I'm laughing about this. Sorry, and they just take over. And um, so, so at the moment, I am clogging up with useless white blood cells like that like a retirement home in Worthing and um, and and what we now need to do is kill them off again the, the first time around we did that with chemotherapy um, and then because they're a bit slower producing um, you see so I still produce some good ones it's just that my body is saying it's all right I've got plenty of white blood cells so, so I stop producing them um, once we kill everything off the good ones hopefully come back and, and we've now got these ways of uh, suppressing the thugs and um, controlling them with better drugs than chemotherapy. Uh, so then, you know, I'm, I'm hoping next Wednesday um, <coughs> is the date I've got with my hematologist where I'm just going to go in and fake the rest of the five symptoms. <laughs> you know, the fatigue is the one that's driving me nuts. So I'm just going to pretend I've got all the others. And uh, and, and what, what does that mean when you when you leave here today? Yeah. What what will you do? Uh, well, I, I've invested time and energy in you today, and, yeah. uh, and I had to get Thank up this you, morning and calculate uh, how much. I, I, I kind of describe it as having, um, if you woke up in the morning with your mobile phone and uh, you've, you've got 10% um, battery and you've got a whole day ahead of you of, of things to do and you've got no way of charging it, you've lost your charger and yeah. you're not going to be able to buy another charger. It doesn't matter what you try and do to this phone. It's it's You're going to have to put it on battery saver mode. Yeah. Decide what the important emails are. Don't yeah. look at your Facebook. Yeah. Don't look at Twitter. Yeah. Um, don't play any games on it or watch any videos. You know, just and um, and and use texting instead of WhatsApp because it's not. You know, if you know a little bit about your phone, you know how to conserve the battery life in that. Yeah. With me, it's the same. I have to get up in the morning, do a systems check, and go, "How am I feeling?" Um, and uh, if I think I've got 10% battery, I have to go, okay, well, this is an important thing to do to me, and, um, and this isn't, so I won't, do, I won't do the laundry, I won't clean the flat today, yeah. but I will go and see a mate, and right. I'll invest some time in that. It's, it's um, interesting, isn't it? Because that's what, what we should uh, well, always be doing. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I, I, really, yes. I really don't want to ask this question, but I, ha I kind of feel like I have to, and I'm sure you've, you've thought about it yourself, that do, do you see... The cancer's given you something, you know, you talked yeah. earlier, maybe you mentioned it was 
as a gift. Yeah, can well, you look, I mean, can you look at it like that? Can you see? So it the as... leukemia is not a gift, other than it triggered the idea in me that you also can get creative cancer. Um, so, I, so what I figure is if if whatever it is, and nobody really knows, I'm sure it's a number of the unhealthy things that I do in my life that have caused this genetic um, change in my DNA. Um, but but whatever it is that did that probably also altered my DNA to such an extent to make me a better cartoonist. That's the way I see it. It's not true. There's no science in no. that. But the way I like to see it is that I've got creative cancer and selfish creative cancer where I just go bugger it. I'm going to put my stories out yeah. there for people and they'll just like them or not. Um, and I was uh, quite able to step over the line of saying I'm an artist, I'm a designer, I'm this now. Um, and be public about all of that and be public about my cancer which is a good thing as well you know just mm. talking to people about it with a reasonable sense of humor means that people learn something about it and learn to spot the signals you know if your neck starts swelling up and you feel tired go and get a blood test it's as simple as that mm. it could be this or something else um but yeah i i, I think that it's given me this ray you were just alluding to this moment where i'm able to um go it's important that um it's important that I do something that makes me happy or makes somebody I love happy, but it's important that I don't do things that I feel compelled to do just because. Mm. Um, you, you, you know, you, I've got a friend who, 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 who describes it quite well. I think is that you know he, he's he's unprepared. This is Cameron and Rob who who have come to this conclusion. He's unprepared to continue impressing people they don't like yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> i finally got to the point but you see people think i'm a very opinionated obnoxious full of my own um think i'm always right etc and i'm really not like that i am genuinely a people pleaser i try to be a people pleaser um but but i came to the conclusion about three years ago that it's stuff it why am I trying to please these people? <laughs> what is the point? You know, I still feel it all the time. I, I, I totally, um, uh, totally uh, want everybody to like me. But when they don't, I'm like, all right, it's fine, <laughs> whatever. Um, or I'll go and f fight them back. You know, it's um, yeah. Why would you want somebody you don't respect? Or, uh, don't respect why do you want the respect of somebody you don't respect? Absolutely, yeah. and yeah, that's been the story of all those bosses. You know, the, my problem with authority is often I will not respect somebody just because they've been in a company longer than me or just because they have a job yeah, title yeah. that's bigger than mine mm. um the the, the it, it's always a doomed position to take i'm not recommending it to anybody because essentially it's an unfair fight um it's like with my it's you know i'll bring it back to the cancer I, another phrase i don't like aside from good cancer is um he's fighting cancer or she's trying to beat cancer that's a crap thing to say to anybody with cancer because people lose that fight a lot yeah and it and what are you saying about them that they're a failure because mm. they didn't fight it enough they didn't put yeah, on yeah. enough lycra and run mm. up enough mountains and all that crap um so i think it's about how you deal with your cancer it's about how you live with your cancer um, and die with your cancer you know i've seen some people die very gracefully uh, mm. in the in the chemo ward <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Which I don't very often get upset about, but those thoughts often I do. I've seen some people die beautifully and gracefully, and um, and how, how, what, what, what's, what's beautifully and, and gracefully? What? Honesty appears in their life, getting off the train far too late. I sat next to a woman who was 34. She got acute 
myeloid leukemia, which is aggressive. It's, it's awfully aggressive. And uh, they give you some serious chemotherapy for that. Um, like, uh, you know, her hair dropped out straight away. She'd got three young kids. I, I don't see all of this. I'm hearing, uh, you know, you spend 12 hours uh, or, or, or 8 to 12 hours sit, stories you're sitting hearing in a chair in, in, with in a drip the, yeah. and you've got to talk to people yeah. or, or not. You know, I see some people that don't talk to anybody else in the room, whereas I like to spend time. Uh, this time around, because I'm not doing chemo, I'll feel a bit miffed, actually, because I won't get that day at the spa, as I used to see, <laughs> where you meet interesting people and the nurses are running spa. around looking after you all yeah. day. Um, but no, you hear those stories and then they're not there the next week. And when you ask why they're not there, it's because they've gone, you know. And, and this woman, she was there for three weeks. And Anne was her name and um, she'd got two young kids. And she hadn't wanted to tell her kids about the cancer. The first week she said, we're not going to tell them. And I said, you really ought to do that. You really ought to be honest about this. It's going to change your life. And, and then bless her, she wasn't there three weeks later. You know, so, um, yeah, so you kind of think, well, God, is you know, I, I, I met a guy who... Um, he just retired from the post office after 55 years, he and his uh, wife, and they'd just brought a barge. And, and then he'd started to feel tired, and he'd, he'd, um, they were going to live on this barge in the Oxford Canals. And uh, he was there for his first diagnosis meeting, and I tend to talk to people in the, in the waiting room about, um, you know, I'd gone through the cycle of chemo, and I was just there for my sort of three-monthly checkup with my doctor. Um, so I was trying to reassure them and saying everything will be fine. Everything will be fine. It's you know it's very treatable illness. As long as they don't call it acute leukemia when they when they talk to you, it'll be fine. And then uh, um, and, I, and they showed me pictures of the barge, and I'm thinking, well, good for you guys. That's a great way to live with this as yeah. well because they could uh, drive trundle their barge up to the. I was being treated in Oxford at the time on a trial, and uh, they could um, park their barge up by the Oxford canals. You know, do the chemo. <coughs> have a night or an evening in Oxford and then trundle off. Great way to deal with it. Uh, anyway, his wife comes running out of this first meeting with my doctor and and uh, uh, and, she, and, she, uh, and she gave me a big hug and then said, uh, they said, it's acute. What are we going to do? And I'm like, oh God, I wish I hadn't queued you up for that. Oh, I no, so yeah. wish I hadn't queued you up for that. Because in her head, it was a much bigger problem Anyway, it turns out, and I, we stayed in touch with each other for a while, and um, they sold the boat, uh, moved back into a house, and, and he died. And, um, and you just think, God, why didn't you retire 10 years ago? Yeah. Why didn't you have 10 years on the boat? Why didn't you make that? How much money is enough money? For you to get off the the, the wages bandwagon and, and start, well, and particularly I, if you can buy a boat. Well, I meet people all the time. That, you know, I, I know some. I won't name any names on this, but I do know some people who are healthy, who are in jobs that are paying six-figure salaries, and they want to retire somewhere. Not retire, but they want to go and do something else. They want to. You know, I've always wanted to be a sculptor, Mike, and I, I'm thinking about getting a place in Tuscany and doing that. But I'll, I haven't got enough money at the moment. I'm going. Well, how much do? You, if you own six figures, you've got a four-bedroom house in Brighton. What, how much do you need? But and, and my, uh, my advice to anyone that wants to become an artist or do anything that they really do want to do in life is just learn to live with less money. That's right. That's well, the best happening. Do that it? first. Yeah. And it's something that everyone can do. And yeah, I, I don't yeah. want to do this too often, but Pablo, Pablo Woodward, listen to that episode. He, he, he lives on £20 a day. Right. Um, I, I mean, I'm not saying it's for everyone. I couldn't do that because I smoke. So. <laughs> <laughs> so. 
Um, but I'm not far off it. Yeah. So there was, there was a question that, that popped into my head, and that is, uh, what you do now? Do you? Would you have enjoyed it if you hadn't had the diagnosis, or yeah. do you enjoy it because it's? If somebody had walked up to me and said, "Your powerpoints are amazing. Would you like to make comics?" Actually, I don't think I'd have done it. I'd have ah. been very chuffed to be offered that, and I'd done it for a week and then thought of them as my boss and got sacked or something. It's, um, yeah, no, I love facing adversity and finding a way out of it. Um, I love a challenge. I love a. I, sadly, I kind of love an enemy. I like to have somebody to focus on to go. I'm going to prove you wrong. Um, I quite often do that. Um, I kind of need that for my motivation all the time. But these days, I find myself in a much better place, which is motivated to share a story. I still the the, the one thing that I don't like about what I do. I call myself a, a stand-up cartoonist in that I totally need an audience for my work instantly. I can't spend six months writing something secretly. Mm. It has to be public. So you have to see media. the reaction. It's affirmation. I like I like the fact that people like my thought of the morning. Um, so that that's, goes back to the people-pleasing. <coughs> it does, but... Um, but I'm also very uncomfortable with that as well. So Zoe, who helps me um, distribute my comics, so I should say. Yeah, now, I was just thinking. Let's let's explain. Third so there's, career. There's, yeah. yeah, the third career. So that, um, there's that, three. There's three threads. Well, there's four now, isn't there? There's four threads. Yeah. So initially, I guess. And all of this came from following my nose. I moved down to Brighton. Um, there was another illness in our house in my second marriage, and um, uh, it was uh, a, a bit more threatening to to one of the kids. And uh, so, so for lots of reasons, I ended up moving down to a flat in Brighton. Um, I also got a dog to prove that I was uh, uh, capable of um, being a responsible human being, and uh, didn't do very well with that. Um, but um, and also for the exercise, yeah. and uh, and I started doing cartoons about her because she did drive me a bit mad. Um, the dog, yeah, Scrabble. Uh, I. I um, I brought her back from the rescue centre up in the Downs, um, All Sorts Rescue, and uh, she was sick in the car, and then I put her in the flat, and she peed on the floor of the flat. And I didn't realise, I'm not a very good dog owner, so I should have took her for a walk before I put her in the car, I should have done that more gently rather than just putting her in the back of the car. Um, But I started thinking, well, I'm either going to take her back because I'm a useless dog owner, or... um, or I've got to work out some way of dealing with this. So I just did a cartoon about why she'd pissed on my floor. <laughs> and it was because she walked in, looked at the state of the floor and thought, this needs mopping. And the only way I can communicate that is to piss on it and get the <laughs> so, so it became oh, this sort of, this idea of Scrabble teaching me how to be a dog owner. Yeah. And then that started to, and I was just doing that on my personal social media account. Uh, and what I tend to do with that, I've been... For a few years before that, I'd been running a political account um, that got quite popular for various reasons. This account called Trumpton uh, on social media, which UKIP had taken offence at once. And that, that, that wasn't a cartoon at that stage, was it? No, that so was I was you just stealing photos from the TV show Trumpton. Mm. Uh, I ended up watching every single episode of Trumpton 
particularly in and Campbell Trumpton Wheat is, Green. It was, I, I, I don't remember. I mean, oh, I remember. Because you're too young, Neil. Yeah, I know. But <laughs> it, it's 660. It was created in 1967, yeah. as was I. And um, <laughs> so, so I was too young to watch it the first time around. But uh, it was a stop motion um, show, little puppets in a little town. Uh, well, there was a there was a town, a city, and a village. Uh, three different shows, uh, all created by Gordon Murray. Uh-huh. Um, an amazing little show that I loved. And it, it, I, I once did a joke about Nigel Farage using a picture from Trumpton because it just dawned on me one morning that uh, Farage is about two years older than me, and uh, and I'm thinking that terrified me for a start. <laughs> I think constantly, and then I was thinking, what kind of childhood? What what version of Britain did he grow up in that he wants to go back to? Because, you know, I have very few memories pre-EU because that was in the 90, early 1970s. He only would, he'd have been a little bit more aware in the 70s. But, but not much. But he had no memory at all of what kind of Britain it was before. So mm. all of this bollocks he talks about how great we used to be. Well, you have no personal experience of that at all. Uh, and I thought, well, maybe it's just he watched an episode of Trumpton and thought that's the way the world should be. There are no brown people in Trumpton. There's uh, there's one episode where an ice cream man called Tony, who looks suspiciously Italian, turns up, and, <laughs> and the fire brigade are called out to get rid of him. And um, you know, the mayor is called Mr. Mayor, and never seems to have an election. So I think, yeah, this is the only guy with a car as well, except Chippy Minton. Um, <laughs> so you know, it's so strange hearing these uh, these names. They're all coming back to Windy me. Miller, you know, my favourite. Constantly drunk in a children's TV show. Um, but yeah, so so I just did one joke about that, and it was the most popular joke mm. I'd done. Uh, and, and, and then, then I just took over again. the town. And, and I tend that's the affirmation bit of once you get a reaction, it's worth following it for a while. Mm. If you still love it, if it's something you wake up with the next day, um, I think I heard your your first podcast and you were talking about the fact that you wanted to do a podcast you threw a load of energy into it mm. and then it sat on your hard disk for That's a while and right. um, i'm like that I, I've, I have a bunch of projects on my hard disk that if they don't last more than 48 hours that it's not the right time to yeah. do them um, but if they're still exciting me every day and i want to do something and an audience is still liking what i'm doing then um you know somebody said to me the other day does that mean you're just pleasing the audience all the time I went, no it's not a, it's about me saying what i want and if they keep reacting to that then i'll keep going with it yeah. and then i'll explore it further and further yeah and then i'll try and twist with their head at some point and say something completely dark or wrong basically to see how far i can take it um but then you do find out what's popular and how it's working and 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 where it's heading and then eventually you have to find out a way of making money from that but to go back to the dog thing it literally i was thinking well my my personal social media accounts have a because of my eclectic careers I have a bunch of people from tv and the web and games and they don't want to see cartoons about dogs all day long so i'll set up a separate page for her um and just started publishing on twitter and facebook almost every day really um and then i got an email in a quite a dark week um some shit was going on in my life and I was ignoring my email um, and, and at the end of that week I looked at my email and saw this email to Scrabble from a publisher just saying dear Scrabble we'd like I didn't to didn't think that happened anymore that's great <laughs> I totally did Which publisher in fact it happens it? all the time to me this is the thing about publishing it's about that we live in a world now where you can share your stories and your creativity and your work and your ideas and there are people out there who will find them yes. and and they will help you if you follow them mm. if you follow your nose 
Um, I'm looking for a new publisher at the moment for a new book I'm doing, and I tweeted about it a couple of days ago, and two publishers have written directly right. to me. Yeah. And they've said, it's not like it's a networking thing, because they said, what kind of publisher are you looking for? And I said, just a lovely one. Yeah. <laughs> and they go, what does that mean? And I go, well, we'll find out, won't we, basically? Because you think, I want to work with some good people, so if you're a good person, maybe that'll be all right. Um, but in this case, Jude wrote to Scrabble, and because I was a week late, I wrote back as Scrabble, just saying, <laughs> I'm really sorry, uh, Mike is so bloody lazy. It, it's taken me a whole week to learn how to use a keyboard without opposable thumbs. And, uh, and, and then Scrabble negotiated the contract um, well with, done, with Jude. She's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely brilliant. And I thought, well, always I will work through Scrabble on that, uh, in that, that oh, way. That's a lot of fun, isn't it? And that, that sort of goes back to this avatar thing we were talking mm. about the, uh, earlier that that book is ostensibly about me so so we 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 published the first book called mike and scrabble and then quite soon afterwards a bit too soon afterwards we did uh, a second book mike's mike and scrabble 2 the difficult second book it's, it's exactly what it's called um and uh, and it's mike and scrabble 2 too um <laughs> But, but in that one, it's become meta because uh, Scrabble is listed on Amazon as the co-author of the book for tax reasons, really. And um, <laughs> not that we make any money from it. Um, but, but in the second book, it acknowledges that she's become an author and she develops an ego. And, and it's, it, both books are a guide to, uh, for dogs on training um, broken human beings. So it's I'm, Mike is the butt of all the jokes in, mm. in there to a great extent. There's some there's some obvious dog fart jokes, um, but but uh, you know, but it deals with cancer and death and drunkenness and kebabs and all sorts of things uh, that Scrabble's you, trying to fix in me. And do you sit in your flat and and, and laugh at my own jokes? Yeah. Oh God, no! If I get to that point, we're in real trouble. <laughs> but you must you must know what's I I. I you know what you find funny. Well, I often what, what, get so. Last night I was walking back. I'd been to see a guitarist at the Paris House, and I was walking back, and and an idea struck me for a cartoon for this morning, um, and it was just a sentence, which was um, something like, uh, "I think what I wrote down yesterday was um, there is a there is a dog for everybody. Uh, it's just that if you haven't found them, it's just you haven't met enough dogs yet." And I thought that's a fairly typical Mike and the Scrabble joke, which is. You could just read it as a lovely thing about you will always find the perfect dog for you, or you could read it that you've got to date a lot of dogs before you find somebody yeah. nice. Yeah. You know, there's that double edge to to the humour, and um, and I drew it this morning because it just came to me, and I did stop and write it in my phone because I quite often forget them, uh, and then this morning I just looked it up and changed it slightly to to something else and drew it uh, with a few dogs with Scrabble. So it, it, um, they don't necessarily make me laugh, but I do think of things and I go, oh, stop, just that's cool. Um, uh, but no, I don't. I mean, it's like I do the, 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 the There's a where Mike and Scrabble has ended up. The, 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 there's one favourite story in there that the bus. I did a joke about the uh, buses. Scrabble barked at a bus once, and uh, I did this fairly lame joke about the fact that dog. It's a little known fact that uh, wolves used to hunt buses in the wild, and that's why they bark at them in the street. Um, and it, it wasn't even funny, but the uh, bus company liked it, and they asked me to do to design a um, page, the front page of their website for a month while they were doing dog-friendly promotions, which was nice. So I drew a bus, one of their buses, full of my dogs, with me chasing the bus. And then I was having coffee with the marketing um, director of the of uh, Brighton and Hove Buses, and she said, "Oh, we love that page. It was great. Is there anything else you'd like to do?" And just as she said that, a bus went by. 
And I said, well, can we, can we actually stick my dogs in the windows? Oh, wonderful. And now the the 25 bus that drives around Brighton is full of all my dogs. Oh, that's and, great. Um, and, then, and then they commissioned me to do one with cats as well. Um, that, must, that must make you smile. I bloody love it. Cause when, you, when you see the bus. I used to come to Brighton as a kid uh, because my dad was a, a bus fan. And uh, once a year there used to be an antique bus um, rally festival down here. Um, and so my only experience of Brighton as a young proto-mod in the 80s uh, was not that I was released in my parka to go and explore Brighton because I probably wouldn't have had um, the guts I to can do see, that I can time. see where the skinhead story comes yeah, from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. It's the mod totally. skinhead oh, thing, Quadrophenia was, yeah, yeah. Quadrophenia was my dream um, film, yeah. And uh, But anyway, we used to come to Brighton and go and hang out at Madeira Terrace looking at ancient buses. And um, I, I, my dad died in the late 90s and, and I just, I constantly think, every time I see that bus, I just think, oh, my old man would be so yes, proud yeah, yeah. to have a bus in Brighton that's got a picture of my dog and me on, on, on the back. And um, I, I want to respectfully skip past the brexit comment a, a little bit because i think we could just get caught up in totally don't politics let's not do brexit politics and all kinds of other things so um but, but I just blah blah to, blah I spent a year that. making a comic called and the that, brexit and that's turned into to, to quite a thing now hasn't it yeah that's um it's a monthly um comic that pays for me to exist now so this it, it, i love everybody that um subscribes to it because in the last couple of months i've been um slower and um uh, slower at getting the comics out and, and producing them. It's quite hard work for me, and um, the uh, it's not hard work. You know, drawing cartoons is not hard work, but it's mentally challenging. Yeah. And and, I'm and you can't just turn slower. it on. No, and I'm slower and slower at the moment. And um, but that but people still that, pay, and, 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 and they write to me saying, "Don't worry, don't send the comic. We'll send the money. It's lovely. Yeah. We that's, keep, that's just keep going." Um, so I'm determined. Uh, I'm, I'm what I'm working on at the moment is a. I'm going to catch up with myself by creating a little book of what's happened in the last four months when I'm better uh, and, and sending that out to everybody but that's good because that gives me all the choices now in life where I can um, there's just enough people subscribing for it to be an income and I can pay somebody to help me put them out um, and um, so Trump Trumpton blew up because it kind of went viral and that's became became its own thing mm. that led to the brexit comic uh, well it kind of led to Mike and Scrabble first um, did it okay. really, well, because having a you know, Trumpson's got twenty seven, twenty eight thousand followers, um, and having accounts like that um, allows me to create uh, or try out new things mm. because I can amplify them quite quickly myself. Mm. I don't need to pay um, for for social media amplification. And then when you build a few um, of those, so now I've got Mike and Scrabble that's got my own six, seven thousand followers, I think. And then so launching the Brexit comic was quite easy because. Um, the combination of those got me like 12,000 followers fairly quickly. Um, I've just launched a project called The Last Iceberg, which is my, having failed to stop Brexit, I'm going to fail to save the planet. <laughs> and, this uh, is, that's, yeah, it's kind of what I wanted to m move towards, actually, because if, if, there's obviously something, there's a calling there from you. Yeah, it's, um, I saw a Greta Thunberg um, yeah. speech, and, and that girl is just incredible. Um, 16, 17 years old now, and... Uh, speaking truth to power yeah. in a way that I think maybe only an autistic Swedish could, could do girl it. could do. Yeah. Um, but even Donald Trump has to listen to her because he knows he can't, there's nowhere he can go. <laughs> you can't go, you can't call her that wacky idiot because you just go, mm, that's totally the wrong language, isn't it? Um, but she's clear and concise and powerful uh, and a young person um, talking about what um, all generations have done 
what capitalism has done yeah. uh, to, to, to our sort of tenuous environment. Um, but also reminding me that um, I'm always on the side of uh, uh, the scientists and, and the climate change people and whatever, but, but I don't know a lot about it. I know enough. I'm one of those people that can absorb just enough information to sound like I'm extremely knowledgeable. <laughs> um, you know, it's why I think it gets I'm, you through life. Though, I think it? it's why not to do the politics, but it's why I'm drawn to people like Trump and Farage and Johnson because I think I share some of their characteristics. <laughs> it's just I'm not using them for bad. You know, it's like we all have the same superpower, but I'm just using it for cartoons, not uh, not uh, lining the pockets of Russian oligarchs. But um, in this case, I was thinking, well, what's the problem? Why why are we struggling to communicate this? And and I think it's because of the scale. It's like anything, you know, if you're an atheist like I am and you try to talk to people who are religious, not, not, to, not to beat them down or anything, but just to say why I believe what I believe, um, is, is you know, I like to talk about the majesty of, of, of the infinite, you know, the, this amazing universe that we live in that can create us, that can look up in the sky and look at it and try mm. and work out what it is. Mm. And you don't need any deities to explain all of that. You just need this awe, but you need to understand or try to understand the infinite, the, 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 you know, this huge amount of time that's passed for this accident of us to have happened. Mm. Um, uh, it's the other thing I say about cancer, just from that point of view, is that it, cancer is the reason humans exist, um, because it's it, it's um, it's those rapid genetic changes to our DNA that sometimes benefit us. So, if your DNA changes in one way, you end up as an Olympic athlete. Mm. If your DNA changes in another, you end up with a brain tumor. Mm. Um, it's you've got to have the brain tumors to get the Olympic athletes. That's the way it works. But it's for this move. Well, yeah, and similarly, you've got to you've got to have the the um, orangutans uh, to get the humans. You've got to have the the elephants and dinosaurs to get to you know all of those changes mm. to our basic amoeba DNA are all accidents of um, things happening in the universe. And that's just amazing to me. It's just incredible. But but I get lost in trying to explain the immensity of that because once you even try and explain how far away the moon is, it blows people's minds or how old the earth is. It's an impossible thing for us to comprehend. And I think with climate change, it, it's that thing of it's just immense numbers that, that go contrary to your personal experience so donald trump often will say no oh, they say it's climate warming but it's snowing and you go oh <laughs> god you know can you understand what average and mean temperatures are donald can you understand this graph that goes up from 1905 to to uh, 2019 and shows that we are heading for a disaster on a global scale no, he can't because he looks out the window and it's snowing. And so as far as he's concerned, there's no problem. And I think with most people, that's the way we look at mm. climate change. Is, you know, if you, if you live in Britain and you look at what's going to happen statistically, actually, we're going to be all right for a little while. That's the worst bit about it is for about 20 years with global warming, we will probably, you know, we'll Bright actually thrive. Brighton will become the new Mediterranean. The, yeah, that's it. You know. um, until it drowns, and and also the problem that we're going to have with immigration from sub-Saharan Africa, which is kind of what's going which, on. Which Attenborough was talking about yesterday, wasn't yeah. he? You know, there's, there's no water down there where it's incredibly hot. Where are people going to go south? No, there's no land. They're going to go north. Mm. So we're, we are heading for a human disaster on a massive mm. scale, much less so than we are Brighton burning to a fringe just because it's 3% warmer. Um, and you've got to try and find those stories that resonate with people so that you can go, this is it. And, and so what I was thinking 
was I've always wanted to create a children's book because my work looks like children's books. Mm. It's quite difficult to sell quite often because it's got very adult or dark themes to it, um, but it looks like a children's book. So I thought, I, I want to do a children's book, but they always end up going dark at some point. <laughs> saying, oh, God. So I thought, well, let's start dark. Um, what, we, the two things I wanted to do, one was I wanted to draw a bear. I just wanted to draw a bear. I came up with this idea of drawing a polar bear and worked out to build that model and draw it. And the other was I wanted to give the tools to kids to be able to argue with their parents about climate change, um, to give them some facts that they could use in a funny, smart, witty way. Um, that would allow them to to, uh, to to give them weapons, effectively, because kids do seem to get it, and um, because they've not been fooled by, you know, the stuff we were talking about earlier about the acquisition of stuff, yeah. the um, the the um, uh, owning more land than the next guy, basically, um, uh, acquiring all your plastic stuff from everywhere. The, the, the kids don't think that way, basically. They have to be trained to do that. Um, so I, I kind of want to create a story that gives them that ammunition. So it starts with this post-apocalyptic world of a bear who's probably the last bear, uh, for all he knows, um, who finds what he thinks is the last iceberg um, because he hasn't seen an iceberg for uh, most of his life. Uh, and he sets off on a journey to find out where the ice has gone and he meets Emp, who's a penguin, who's my little female Elon Musk character. <laughs> and um, Emp uh, lives on... The plastic island that's been floating around the Pacific um, and, and, and exists now, and, and she recycles uh, the detritus of humanity into into amazing inventions that create fresh water or um, uh, agriculture or rockets or whatever methane monkey poo powered rockets, which is a thing NASA are actually researching. So um, that's not true. No. So uh, when, we to, rockets, when we go to when we go to Mars, not quite, but when we go to Mars um, and the Moon. Uh, we're going to need a way of manufacturing fuel there in order to get back. Because if you carry all the fuel to Mars and the moon yep, to and get back again, methane, right? so what do humans and animals mm. make, which is methane, and, and that's just a waste product that we have to bring back from the moon normally, although we didn't. Um, Neil Armstrong famously left a poo there. Um, but uh, we, you know, there is water on the moon and in Mars um, in frozen craters and uh, NASA are researching combining human feces and animal feces and plant detritus with the water there to create methane gas and turn that into fuel so that you can fly back from the moon because you don't actually need as much power to get off the moon yeah, as you yeah. do to get off the earth. It's perfectly possible that if we build a star base there that we'll be making our own fuel. I, I like to imagine if you're living on the moon base and, and say, I've got to go home it's my father's funeral, and they'll go, mm, we're all going to have to have a lot more shits <laughs> <laughs> before we can do that. Come on, everybody. But, um, yeah, but that's, you, you know, so, so stories like that made me think, oh, that's great. If I had a monkey who lives on, uh, the last monkey that lives on an island with other animals uh, and flings its poo around all the time, and, um, and, and all the other animals complain, so he invents headphones to stop himself hearing the other animals complaining about the smell which is my analogy for a politician. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, Bear and Emp discovered this and helped them turn it into recyclable material. And then in every story, I want something that kids can go and do uh, as a result or using a bit of the book and some recycled stuff to actually make something mm. that, that Emp has made. So in one story, um, it's about uh, uh, Rab, the um, rabbit, who um, is down to their last four carrots. Um, I kind of like to think, you know, this 
climate change has just happened and these animals are now they have no idea how carrots happened basically but they've got four left um so they have to invent agriculture so then you so then all of these characters work out what agriculture is or what farming is to plant more carrots and then the last page in the book will be four carrot seeds embedded in a page oh, nice. and you tear the page oh, out nice. stick yeah, it in going, the ground and it grows that's really nice um so you, you see i just think that way kids know the funny stuff to say there's a bit of science fart jokes plus they've got some carrots basically yeah. at the end of it and you know and this will go as a book will it it's the plan but i i treat because of the mike and scrabble experience and the trumpson experience i tend to treat everything as um i start with that objective um but i follow my nose and and the feedback that comes to me and the opportunities that turn up so um iceberg is only six weeks old um but i've been prolific like you were with your podcasting you know mm. it's that I, I've, I've generated maybe 100 150 images already all the characters i've been building 3d models of them all and then a friend contacted me and asked me if i would um uh she'd been following it on facebook and uh she works for the, the uh, film london so she asked me two weeks ago a little bit before that but two weeks ago i ended up going to uh pitch it to a bunch of film and tv companies um, and it went down very well, but actually there's an even bigger story there, which is she asked me to take Mike and Scrabble along as well. And I said to her, I don't think, I, I said, Mike and Scrabble is not really a film or TV thing. And she said, God, no, there is. There totally is. Mike, take it. And I'm now in discussions with a film company. But <laughs> genuinely, I could not have had a more exciting Thursday in my life. Um, a very good film company want to... Um, want to try and turn Mike and Scrabble into a, a, a live action film about a guy who gets cancer and finds his creative thing. And um, <laughs> wow. depending on when you put this out, I should shut my mouth really. But There's talk of some very famous actors, so I won't actually name them on the basis that that might jinx everything, but um, some very famous British actors playing so me, which is ridiculous. Oh, man. Who, do you, who, do you want, who do you want What's to play the, you? I want it, I, I've said to them already, you know, I'd always seen... Um, uh, George Clooney playing me so anything anything less than that yeah. I, I thought you might say that all my mates have said um, they're they all, thinking they're all, they've all like been that. casting themselves <laughs> and uh, and I keep saying to them look you've got to accept that I'm at least second best on my thing so you have to choose who you want to play you and then think about the second best I said you'll all end up at Johnny Vegas anyway <laughs> so I was going to say to you uh, what do you think the percentage likelihood is that that's going, that's, that's going to happen but I I'm, don't want you to answer that question if that's okay because I think probably the bigger consideration is this career three as you're framing it is it's like you're coming of age, isn't it? It's this. This is there's so this is much. This me turning eighteen and getting so an art O level. It, <laughs> there really is, and uh, however that's come about, you know, obviously it's linked up somewhere to the cancer and you know that that kind of change to be able to work in your pajamas and all the rest of it. But it but it's led to this incredibly wholesome and exciting world for you. Um, wholesome is probably a stretch, but because um, I'm making some mistakes in that process and spending too much down, time down the pub, but then I do a cartoon about that and it's fine. Um, totally rewarding, mm. you know. I find it not financially because it's not um, most of the time, um, but uh, I I find it exciting. I mean, last that, I, I had lunch with the managing director of a film company who's made some of the films that I went to see last year at the mm. um, Duke of York uh, cinema because I like, I'm driven, d drawn towards English indie films and um, uh, 
And it's, you know, it's just amazing to have anybody sit there and say that it's something that I, a little comic book that wouldn't have happened if my publisher hadn't written to my dog and I hadn't decided <laughs> to write back as my dog. None of which would have happened if I didn't get the cancer. Um, but so for, for it's potentially going to turn into some, you know. But but isn't it amazing when you do? change things around what follows take the opportunities yeah for me it's always been so always um somebody will say i'll put a picture up and somebody will say do you do that as a print and i go no but i could work out how and now i've got a little shop that sells the more popular prints and, and, and you can't predict those things can no, you? no but, but but you can once you've done them and figure them out um well, so you can have faith that something will yeah, so I did a I did a new I did this one the other day, which which is an unusual Mike and Scrabble um, picture in that it, it was it only had one meaning and it genuinely was optimistic and it just said um, uh, every twenty four hours you get another chance to have a good day um, and I just thought I'd not heard it phrased that way before um, but it's quite it's one of those if there's a picture of a whale in it it would be one of those annoying motivational posters somewhere basically yeah. but I genuinely believed it because I'd had two really shit days and I decided that morning that if I started the day feeling like I was going to have a shit day I probably would mm. so yeah. I started the day thinking I'm going to have a good day and it did I had a great day so it worked and um, and then somebody said that is that in the shop can I buy it as a print and I went no I'll do that I stuck it in the shop and sold five straight away and and that means now, because now I've got Zoe helping me be incredibly efficient, it means that by tomorrow, uh, five people somewhere in their house on their wall will have a, that mm. picture with a little bit of motivation for them in the morning. And that's just lovely. And in fact, the thing I love the most is when people send me a photo of a, one of my pictures on their wall. Um, yeah, I love that. It's real. I, I so do, if you're listening and you have a picture that Mike did on your wall, please, please send, send it. it. Yeah, it's, um, what? So obviously you wouldn't, I'm guessing. Recommend that people go and get themselves some cancer. Oh, I do. I think <laughs> one in four of you should try it. Um, oh no, that's what's going to happen anyway. For the change that's happened, and for everything that you've experienced um, in this in this third phase, what, what what would you what would your advice be? You must be looking at you I mean because you've kind of hinted at it a few times of people that haven't stopped to think and they're just kind yeah. of um, blindly ask yourself somewhere. Just ask yourself. Whose voice is it telling you that you shouldn't do something that you want to do? Mm. You know, life is just too bloody short for you to have all these voices in your head saying that's not the right thing to do. That's not the, you know, people that say in six months' time I'll have a desk nearer the window, just go, just move to the, kick whoever's sitting near the window, kick them off, steal their desk. If you get the sack, so what? It's just a window, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I hear people talking about their work and you just think, just leave. I know it's not that easy. But actually, at well, the moment... It starts with the decision to do it, doesn't it? You've just got to do... Well, who is it? Whose voice is it in your head saying you have to behave this way? You have to do this. You have to... You can't do that. You can't You can't be selfish. You can't uh, do something just for you. Um, what I absolutely know, and I'm still not an expert at this by any stretch of the imagination, pretty rubbish at long-term relationships, I think. I'm, I think I might have learned this time not to get into one again. But... Um, what I know is that you cannot make other people happy around you unless you are happy with yourself. Mm. And that does involve you being a bit selfish mm. sometimes. And, you know, the cancer, luckily for me, has allowed me to go, nah, you know, I know that's going to hurt you, but honestly, it's going to hurt me more mm. to do something, so I'm not doing it. Um, 
And I'm rapidly getting to the point where I can be not rude, but make my choices for myself. Um, But honestly, you know, and and the only bit of advice I ever give to anybody is honestly work out how you can release yourself from the trap of of money. Get to the point that you, you know, and it's circumstances put me in a situation where I hadn't got much and wasn't able to earn much um, for a little while. And and that was the best thing that happened to me because I was like, work that out. Every time money does come, it's a bonus. Mm. But I sold all these prints. I'm selling art, and and I got. If I could have done that three years ago, to the first point that I came down here, um, if I could have done that, it would have been fine. Yeah. But now I treat it as oh, I just sold a load of art. I'll get down the pub. It's normal. I now. can afford a yeah. beer. Basically, that's so it's, it's, it's much more. Even of a, if it accumulates and it's worth more than that, I, I still treat it as that bonus money. That's mm-hmm. nice. So it's much more of a day-to-day existence in a way, financially. Yes, and and that means that I don't have any plan for a pension. I don't have any plan to live beyond next Thursday. I don't. You know, I I, I spend okay. a lot of time sitting down with the homeless guys in Brighton, asking them how they got there, which decisions got them to that point. Yeah. Um, and what have you learned? Um, you learn that you are always two steps away. Yeah. You know, and most of us financially are probably only a month away from yeah. from that situation. Yeah. I got a friend who's a magistrate, and that's what he says: we're we're two or three decisions away yeah. from being homeless. Yeah, and they're always that's, or, or, or two two or three um, events away. Some, from. Yeah, and quite often it's that. Sometimes the stories. I mean, it's one that I tell that's reasonably funny, but. Um, Quite often the story is my mum died. I, I cared a lot about my mum. And, uh, and then we lost the house that we were living in. So I went off and did this and got involved in drugs. And then I, and in this particular case, it was, and then I tried to kill my brother, like you do. So I came to Brighton. <laughs> right? Yeah, right with you up until the trying to kill your brother <laughs> thing, basically. I'm not going to make that decision, I don't think. Um, but, but, but then, you know, I met guys that sit there and, um, they were married. They'd had twenty years of marriage. They uh, one or the other partner had an affair or something, and they went a bit lally for a month, and and then everything collapsed. Lost his job. Lost the you know the more they were so uh, extremely um, reliant on his big wage, yeah. basically that a month without it they were gone. Um, but he actually felt freer than ever because he was offered. He was out of a trap basically, as far as he was concerned. So I think that's the most important thing. I'm not saying be impoverished. It's not the impoverished artist thing. I have enough sales and marketing skills to know, and and I'm employable enough to be able to work if I need to. And I'm lucky, I'm very lucky, that I can get paid very well for a day's work if I choose to do it. Um, so I'd still do a bit of training just to, just to get money. And I know everybody's not like that. I totally get it, but you, but you can construct yourself a life where there's things that you love doing and you've got big skills for, work out a way to get paid for those. Mm-hmm. It will take a while of not earning much for you to get really good at doing that, and then you're away. Um, because I genuinely believe, the way I feel at the moment, I do not know, if I was an Amazon van driver and I'd got CLL, I have no idea how I would what get through think? a day. Yeah, I would be terrified, I would be anxious all the time, I would be... I mean, it must be awful. I, genu- I hope that doesn't sound at all patronising. I'm like, I do not know how somebody puts in a physical, long, pressurised day. Mm. Um, whereas I work for 12 hours, but, but I don't see it as that. Because yeah. quite a bit of that is sitting there watching YouTube channels trying to find something funny. Yeah, I mean, it's another conversation, but, you know, what is work is uh, quite a... <laughs> 
Mike, you know, where can big question? Where can people find you? Um, that's a, well, that, they don't find Mike Dix really. Do no, they? I have that's so many different places to hide. Um, Mike and Scrabble. Um, if you look for Mike ampersand Scrabble on Google, you'll find me. Um, do look for Mike Dix because I've been involved in the internet for so long that it, you find me very quickly. Um, I tend to do everything on Facebook and Twitter, uh, and and my shop is at uh, Desience.shop. I read um, that as Desience. Desience or Desience, yeah. yeah. It's a made-up word. Great. And I am going to... Um, I'm so excited to see what happens next um, with the films. And, and who's going to play you in the yeah. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> wow. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll discuss that. Johnny Vegas for me, please. <laughs> I take bribes. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. That's it, folks show notes head over to the website at www.lifedonedifferent.ly where you'll find links a quick summary and you can also explore other conversations if you're enjoying this podcast then please tell your friends give us a good rating and remember to subscribe we're also really keen to hear your feedback so please do let us know what you think and give us your ideas over on twitter you can tweet us at lifedonediff that's double f 